News, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the VetGurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, episode 192, 192, Friday the 4th of June 2021. Brendan here with Mark, and it's all happening, Mark. Lockdown is occurring again here in the state of Victoria in Australia, and Gee, we went through probably one of the longest lockdowns periods um, of any place in the world last year, and uh, we had one person come over, come out of quarantine from an unnamed other state in Australia, and now we have fifty odd positive cases, and um, we're in lockdown again, Mark, um, for a week, and then we expect that it will go longer for a week. And I know some of our listeners in other countries in the world will be they'll be laughing at our faces mark at our at our faces they can't see um and thinking that is nothing we've had thousands of people dying every day which they do and i feel so sorry for them um but we have been very lucky being an isolated continent mark and um yeah it's people a bit edgy a bit edgy having to, you know, compulsory masks. Um, you're only allowed out for five reasons. Um, essential work, exercise um, within five kilometres of your home, shopping, um, what, there's two more, and one of them includes getting the vaccination, uh, and there's one more, medical reasons um, is the final one, I think. Um, so that's what's happening here, Mark. We're, we're locked down, we're going crazy again, um, although I'm lucky enough still to be working and reasonably busy, Mark, reasonably busy. Um, what's happening up your end of the world? And I hear you've been on, on a bit of a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm loath to see you. You're off, off in the bush. We were, I was um, saying to you before we came to air that I'm loath to talk about, uh, given the pressure of lockdown. And and as you said, um, it's interesting that uh, that people would look from around the world would look at Victoria and go, you know, whatever it is, it is 48 cases, and you guys are, are smashing it with an absolute. Uh, lockdown um, and the tracing I, um, the contact tracing has been like outstanding they've been on to everyone um, and so to see that from another perspective would go oh these, that's some form of huge overreaction uh, but uh, we know that if it's not caught um, then you will end up in situations like overseas and you poor guys in Victoria have had three or four um, you know you've taken the brunt um, even you know, there's always that politics of who's at fault, but, geez, we appreciate uh, the, the stuff you Victorians have gone through to make sure that it uh, doesn't take off and doesn't go past um, those initial cases and the, the uh, initial contacts. All of Australia yeah, is you, thinking of you. Yeah, <laughs> as you wander off for a holiday um, <laughs> for a few days and then wander back to work, yes. No, thank you, Mark. Um, now, we want to talk about our 200th giveaway. <laughs> is coming up very rapidly within eight episodes and I think you're going to chat about one of our other sponsor prizes, Mark. We spoke about Microchips Australia last week but you want to talk about another sponsor who have kicked in big with a prize for this giveaway. Well, I'm interested. You'll have to remind me. I thought that the wonderful Chemical Essentials has uh, um, sponsored a book 
Um, and doesn't it have your isn't isn't it a book you wrote? <laughs> it's well, you're in there too, Mark. You you were what the co-author on one of the chapters. What an outstanding um, so it prize! It was. Oh, I mean, it's top shelf, top shelf, Mark. It reptile. What, what's it called? Reptile um, in clinical practice or something like that. I should know the name of it. And um, I, I know the anesthesia. The anesthesia chapter yes. was both great and it was almost too late to go in. Yes, co-authored by Mark himself and uh, I helped edit the book and also author a couple of the chapters as well. So um, our our sponsor that you're going to chat about at the moment has, has managed to order in this very hot topic book, which it, it took a lot of effort for him to get it because it was sold out at one place he went, went to to buy it and he will ship that book free of charge to our winner mark of our 200th giveaway. And, um, yeah, let's talk about that sponsor. Well, that's um, Chemical Essentials, the uh, Australian distributor of the wonderful F10 products, um, which we, you know, the the uh, Chemical Essentials company has been involved in exotic and unusual animal practice here in Australia, well, since they started in, uh, and they're just coming up, I noticed on their website that they're coming up for two decades, uh, started in 2001 and literally have been an outstanding supporter of uh, of the uh, special interest group and and a perennial attendee at uh, at our conferences and um, and uh, and certainly they've been an outstanding supporter of our particular podcast uh, and uh, we are so lucky to have them. We and it's doubly it's easy it's easy to sing their praises because we use their products every day at in practice. We use the the uh, Hand disinfectant, you know, the wonderful array of disinfectants and uh, uh, antiseptics that they have, um, we use every day in practice. And, uh, you know, particularly in a practice that uh, worries about uh, Khaleesi virus and myxomatosis in rabbits, that worries about chlamydia in birds and, and you know, the, the other Bornavirus and uh, uh, PBFD, we're constantly uh, scrubbing those enclosures, those hospital enclosures, to ensure that uh, there's no chance of transfer and we're heavily dependent on the wonderful products Andrew distributes. Yes, and during the pandemic ongoing, they, they certainly scrambled very early on with, with getting container loads of of the F10 products being sent out from um, South Africa, where I think it's um, manufactured and um, to distribute it around around Australia and around the world, no doubt, with the other distributors of the F10 products. So thank you to Andrew and his team at Chemical Essentials. And, and yes, that's just part of the swag that we've been chatting about for a couple of episodes. And we'll continue to talk about some of the other prizes in that giveaway. And all you need to do to enter the giveaway is just send an email to us. And we've had a few more um, this week. Um, vetgurus at gmail.com and just say hello and talk a little bit about yourself and tell us where you're from and and what you do and that's all you need to do and you're entered in the giveaway and we as i mentioned earlier we'll post the prize to anywhere in the world mark um to whoever wins that and hopefully it's somebody fairly locals that um, saves us a bit on posting <laughs> but who knows who knows and with it, that it, i'm going to jump into my news story mark i'm going to oh, were you going to talk about the uh, the um 
Patreon site? They, they are uh, Patreon supporters, yeah. So patreon.com, um, vetgurus, or go to vetgurus.com, and that's that's where you can throw us a bone, as we like to talk about it. It's given us a dollar or $2 or $100 a month, um, whatever you want, um, to help support our podcast and to pay for the costs of the of the production, this high-quality, um, polished production. Um, and it does cost us. Uh, it costs us a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> emotionally and um, <laughs> monetary um, to produce it. So if if you're interested in um, helping us out, yeah, go to vetgurus.com and click on the help us. And, um, yeah, how about just giving us a dollar or, or think, of, think of, about a cup of coffee equivalent, just a few dollars once a month. It's nothing for a bit of continuing education um, and hopefully a laugh or two. So that would be great. It will help us tremendously, yes. And with that, I'm going to jump into my news story, Mark, and it's, oh, I don't know about this one. It's by JJ Lee, um, and it's from sciencenews.org. And the title is Grey Wolves Scare Deer from Roads, Reducing Dangerous Collisions. And the whole gist of this article is that in um, that grey wolves help keep North America's deer population in check, but they also provide an added benefit curbing deer vehicle collisions and they did a survey in wisconsin in the usa where they found that wolf population reduced the number of collisions of cars and deers by around about 24 percent they reported in the proceedings of the national academy of science Um, so they looked at deer populations and deer vehicle collisions for 63 counties in wisconsin from 1988 to 2010 and they worked out the the average drop of 38 deer vehicle collisions per year in counties with wolves translated to an estimated $10.9 million in saving each year across the state, Mark. I presume that's for for um, panel beaters, um, for fixing your car um, because I'm, you know, I'm slightly off topic here, but there's a, there's a, there's a, um, there's a um, place you can go in Darwin in Northern Territory, Mark, on the, at the Mindy Beach Market. I don't know whether you've been there. I have not. A bit of an alternative market there. And one of the stalls at the market um, – they, uh, it's a food stall, um, and and their motto is um, "You kill it, we cook it," um, and um, they have all sorts of roadkill that they offer up as as food items there, Mark. And it reminded me of this particular stall, which was doing a roaring trade there, Mark. Um, of all sorts of things that have been squashed that people, and there is a bit of a subculture. I don't know whether you know about this. It's true when with people who go and pick up animals that are roadkill, reasonably fresh, hopefully not too flat, um, that they take home and cook. Um, and I think there's a few, you know, um, internet um, social media sites that um, you can join for this. Not that I'm a member of this, Mark. Um, I would never um, condone such thing now that I'm 95% um, vegan with what's happening with um, home here, Mark. But there, there you go. So back to the story. <laughs> what Grey do you think about that? I think it's a load of crap, this story. Um, I I don't like it. And you don't like it. I was interested in there, there was an argument in there that um, that the predation by the wolves uh, changes the density of deer and the deer behaviour so that it it results in um, 
you know, fewer vehicular impacts. Um, and as a consequence, they suggest that recreational hunters wouldn't be able to replicate the wolves' impact by simply culling the same number of deers because the wolves create a so-called landscape of fear near the roads yes. that keeps the deers away. Landscape of fear. Isn't that something that Trump had when he was in power? Oh, you're going to get in trouble with our international listeners. Oh, yes, yes. yes. I do no, think that, well, um, that there's a lot of uh, you know jumps in logic here that I don't know that I can thoroughly endorse. Yeah, I, I mean, what is the what are they saying in this market? Is that it's good to have? Good to have um, these wolves on the side of the road with the with the landscape of fear because it helps stop vehicle collisions. Um, Just drive uh, slower, yeah, with your headlights on. Yeah, yes. So there you go. That's my article. Mark, it's a it's a bit of a non-article there, but it was published in the National Academy of Sciences. Um, the Proceedings, which is another one of the academic journals that I fervently read every week or month or, or year that it comes out. I think it comes out every month or so. Well, my article's like, I don't know, maybe of the same quality. It uh, It's from, um, I think it was published originally in New Scientist maybe. I don't know. Yes. Um, and it uh, discusses an aspect of kangaroo, excuse me, kangaroo behaviour. Um, it suggests that... Um, uh, kangaroos can learn to ask for help from humans in the same manner that dogs do. And apparently um, the, one of the uh, characteristics that, uh, of, that behaviourists look for in domesticated species is that they are sufficiently sophisticated that they can use body language to interact with humans, that they can communicate with humans. And certain observations of... Uh, kangaroos in zoos, parks and sanctuaries uh, have been examined um, and uh, and when they've been given a tasty treat, maybe a bit of carrot or, or sweet corn or sweet potato, um, they in a small box so the kangaroos know it's there but they can't open the box. It's arranged in such a way that they, it's impossible for them to open it. They've observed what the kangaroos do next and much like their domestic counterparts in earlier forms of this experiment, the kangaroos consistently turn to a nearby human for help. Now, the researcher says, they'd look straight up at my face like a dog or a goat would do, and then back at the box, and some would even come up and scratch my knee like a dog pouring for attention. Um, I don't know what to make of this science, Brendan. I'm, I'm sort of, I would really think that a lot of the kangaroos that are in, in these um, uh, zoos and parks are either the the animals that have been hand-reared by humans and so their uh, imprinting might be a little bit different or they're the offspring of such animals who might, um, you know, might be imprinted with alternate um, behaviour towards humans. I don't know that I'd be entirely happy that, that these are wild animals expressing wild communications with humans. It doesn't surprise me, though. Uh, I don't know whether you know that, but um, Kate's reared a number of eastern greys, and um, and they do uh, communicate um, surprisingly well. And, and we've had a couple of clients who've had, um, had them literally as pets for 
uh, you know, 15 or 16 years in a, um, you know, they live in the farmyard and come into the house in the evening and sit in front of the TV. They are remarkably um, adept at fitting in. I don't know, like many herbivorous animals, I don't know of the complexity of their thought processes, but they definitely have thought processes that get them into those situations. So this behaviour is no surprise to me. You've seen this sort of stuff before with kangaroos, haven't you, Brendan? Yes, yes. It's they're not silly. They're not silly, and they need, they want they want the food, so they they stare at you. That's my answer there. Um, I've just looked up the actual article there, Mark, which was the Royal Society um, yes. publication there, and um, yeah, we report that kangaroos, marsupial mammals that have never been domesticated, actively gazed at an experimenter during an unsolvable problem task. I tell you what, I used to gaze at my mum when I couldn't work out um, how to open the cookie jar, Mark. And you're not domesticated. <laughs> no, that's right. And I, I was I was often regarded as an unsolvable child, <laughs> uh, I think, at home too. Yes. Um, so I, I'm not I'm not surprised at the result is is my answer to your question, mate. I'm not surprised. I'd be I'd be more impressed if uh, a wild mob of kangaroos performed the same behaviour. Yes, yes. So, well, we've given our <laughs> listeners two high quality papers no, there, which we've we've um, critiqued and um, panned. Um, and I think with that, we'll move on to our main topic, which is a gee, it's a big one, isn't it? But um, and we've been put in. It's another one that we've been putting off for. A, for probably 191 episodes because we knew it's a bit of a problem one. And it is feather picking in birds, Mark. And I think what, as we're chatting off air before we started recording, we'll probably do a bit of an overview of this topic because it's a it's a big one and we'll, we'll jump into subtopics of this in, in future podcasts, Mark, because... For all vets who have seen birds that are, are picking at their feathers or doing destructive behaviours um, um, that may be related to behavioural issues or non-behavioural issues, they, they're a bit of a nightmare, aren't they? It's a bit like the the the, the last consult of the day, Mark, and it happens to be a, a a dog or a cat or an animal that comes in with with a dermatological problem. You know, even if it's a dog or a cat, you know, oh God, we're, we're supposedly closing in 10 minutes and, and you've got a skin case coming in, um, even more so if it's a, a feathered skin case that's coming in. So my first question is, Mark, do you enjoy dealing with these cases? Uh, oh, that's a hard question. I do enjoy dealing with them. And to be um, completely and utterly honest, they are immensely complex and frustrating. And a lot of them don't work. A lot of them, are, um, you do not resolve the problem or even um, improve it, depending on the species and the nature of the problem. Um, but they are great to work with. They are great, and the ones that you um, that you are able to make a difference, um, they're very, very gratifying cases. So, yeah, I, I I look forward to them, but I suppose I have a realistic expectation. And I'm going to jump to the the end for this particular topic here, Mark. Do you find that with a, a large percentage of these, do you end up doing similar to what you end up doing with a 
a dog or a cat that has severe behavioural issues and that you end up putting them on Prozac or equivalent. <laughs> so you end up putting them on the same sorts of products, um, you know, a, a minimum number of sort of treatment regimes that, that, that you lump a lot of these into or not? No, we don't. Um, and it's interesting. There's been, I suppose, some controversy about um, the way these cases What am I doing managed, wrong, Mark? <laughs> these cases are managed. Um, you know, uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, um, we would do immense workups uh, that, you know, involved uh, biopsies and numerous blood tests and... Um, and I suppose uh, the pendulum has swung. While you know each individual species, there are different likely um, causes, and some species are more likely to have a psychological component, and other species are more likely to have you know a medical physical component. You never can completely isolate those two, and it's our human nature to put things in boxes and where we always used to think that everything had an underlying medical cause. Now I think there's a, a greater concentration on um, on the, you know, psychological component. And even where there's an underlying medical problem, I think the at the moment we really do concentrate on um, trying to stimulate normal behaviour so that even if there's a problem, um, the behavioural response to that problem, the clinical sign that is feather picking, is less likely to occur. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So let's get break it down to the basics there, Mark. So what, what are the signs? How do you, for, especially for vets who don't see many birds, um, how do you tell or determine that that bird is feather picking? Once again, it's such a big topic. There's so many things I could say, but essentially, I suppose the basics are look at the head. That's the first thing. If the bird has normal plumage on its head and not normal plumage elsewhere, then it's highly likely to be traumatising itself. Um, it's very difficult for most birds to reach their head very easily. Um, they might be able to reach with their foot, and particularly if they are repetitive with behaviour, um, they might damage their feathers. But most birds that are over-preening, that have a, a feather mutilation, feather-damaging behaviour, they're likely to be doing it with their beak. And, um, and most of the time, they can't reach the top of their head with their beak. So if they have nice feathers on their head, um, then think feather destructive behaviour, some behavioural component to it. If their plumage is rotten all over, then it's much, much more likely that they have a, you know, a viral feather dystrophy or that's where we'd be, rather than talking about changing the foraging behaviour, we'd start a medical workup at that point if they have abnormal feathers on their head. Excellent. And what, are there any sort of other signs that you typically see with these birds that are feather picking, Mark? There are some that we associate with it, and there, there's an increasing recognition of species-specific behaviour. So um, a good example of that might be um, the segmental pruritus that would occur in uh, African lovebirds, and they might um, have a particular segment. It almost looks like they're going to have some sort of viral nervous system disease and they pick the feathers out of one part of their body, um, those birds often end up with chronic uh, 
um, inflammation, chronic feather folliculitis, and those feathers will start producing multiple feathers um, out of the single follicle. And so that's a bit of a characteristic warning that, you know, that sort of chronic behaviour has occurred in that species. In others, um, reproductive behaviour seems to be a, a, a complicating factor, and particularly with birds like female eclectus parrots who are a little bit sort of they're emotional birds. They're very emotional birds and they're very uh, highly charged tropical birds who are keen to breed all the time. And so uh, the anxieties that arise from incompleted breeding behaviour or unresponsive, you know, the female bird might behave to one of the owners like they um, would like uh, participation in a breeding event. Um, and when they don't get it, that anxiety might um, accentuate an, an otherwise, you know, a bird that's likely to overpreen and separate some feathers to increase contact with the eggs, they might go overboard with that. So, yeah, there are some species-specific signs and some individual clues that we would look for um, that lead us to, you know, maybe a more tailored process of treating the problem. Yes, and you're just starting to uncover the complexities of these these conditions in our little avian patients, Sam Mark. So it's yes, it's it's troublesome. So how do we what what what's your general comments or thoughts or approach that you'd recommend for you're presented with a bird that, that has some feather destructive behavior behaviour, some feather picking issues? Where do you start? Well, it's a good question, Brendan, and and I think that like you know we one of the things that probably bores our listeners is the way that we continually revert to um, uh, different versions of the same answer. That um, that with that sort of you know the first in the first instance that what we do is review the husbandry, we review the diet, we review the new levels of nutrition. Um, we're often steering people away from. Um, from uh, large food bowls of, uh, of energy-rich food um, supplied ad lib um, and steering them towards um, much more Spartan diets that are measured and, and broken up into daily meals that are concealed in, um, in you know, substrates or um, furniture so that the birds have to explore and find it. Um, and that, of course, has a whole myriad of, of effects. It's easy to do and it um, is... It allows agency in the owners of the birds and rules out a whole bunch of the behavioural things if you go down that path first. And, of course, you look less foolish if you um, have done that and it fails and then you work up, a com you know, do a complex medical workup. If you go to that complex medical workup in the first instance, um, then... Then you go back to that, uh, adjust the husbandry, adjust the nutrition. Um, then, you know, it can look a little bit, well, foolish because it's cost quite a lot to do the workup. There are certain circumstances that I would lead into some simple medical tests. Um, of course, if I thought I had a, you know, a galah that was morbidly obese and may have a fatty liver that's stretched and sore and they're picking their feathers as a consequence, then a blood test in that bird is obviously appropriate. But I would always couple that with those um, uh, husbandry changes, looking at its nutrition, trying to adjust its diet, trying to adjust its exercise. Um, I think they go hand in hand. You can't isolate one from the other, Brendan. 
Husbandry, husbandry, husbandry. We say the same thing every week, don't we? 192 episodes and we're still saying the same. So perhaps if you could just touch on a couple of the the sort of classic um, diagnoses or or, con- or conditions for feather picking in, in, in some of the species that are commonly seen, Mark, and, and just touch on a few of them. Well, I definitely, the you know, obviously the beacon feather disease in the cockatoos is uh, definitely one of the first things I would always make sure that um, if I had any indication of those classic physical examination signs, the constricted blood quills, the the uh, um, uh, dystrophic feathers on the head, the absence of powder down, um, any of those things, then obviously we've got to um, head towards a... a um, you know, we, we do blood work, send it off to Shane Radel at um, CSU and, and get the the uh, PCR and the, um, the uh, immunological response so that we can talk about what's going on. Um, so beacon feather disease is probably the first, uh, you know, you don't want to be caught with a, uh, trying to treat that as a psychological problem. The next one is probably those, um, we definitely see a lot of cockatiels that, uh, female cockatiels that have um, uh, reproductive pain um, uh, start to uh, do cause some problems to their um, uh, their plumage and particularly around sort of the level of the um, under the wings in those areas that you would almost think the the ovaries would uh, would be so if we see a lateralization of feather picking behavior in a cockatiel um, then we're definitely looking at reproductive behavior and, and obviously we're going to try and manage that with husbandry in the first instance it's, but there are times when we look at the the um, uh, gonadotropin trophin agonists to uh, to see if we can be a circuit breaker in that behavior and get them back to normal. Um, and I mentioned eclectus parrots before. They're amongst our most emotional um, parrots. They probably, we don't, we get to see a few African greys, but uh, um, they sort of fall into the same category of birds that they're very, very, very smart, uh, that they do fit into houses loosely but their behavior doesn't match it perfectly and so the areas of home life that uh, don't fit normally with them do cause them a lot of anxiety and those birds are often um, very very distressed and particularly the ekis because they come from a rainforest environment an environment that's always wet if their plumage isn't perfect in the wild they get into trouble so anytime they think anything might not be quite right they do tend to return to their plumage and uh, and start to just adjust it because of the anxiety that's going on. So um, they're probably three of the typical ones we'd see in a day. You'd get to see some too, wouldn't you, Brendan? Me? No, I don't see many birds, you know me. <laughs> um, so how client-wise, um, do, do you find the clients struggle with with dealing with their their pet birds that have these conditions, Mark, and 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 do you find you spend a lot of the time of your consultation coaxing the clients about the complexities of the case and 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 trying to explain to them that this is not a not a quick fix and you're going to go home with the the treatment and it's going to be right tomorrow. Um, and and do you get angry angry clients um with these sorts of um birds that are feather picking? 
Your question is very, as always, insightful, Brendan, because the clients are the the. Um, I reckon the clients are the best prognostic indicator. If you've got highly empathetic, highly motivated clients who um, you know notice things very early, get you onto things very early, the chances of actually uh, affecting significant change are, are pretty good. Um, but if you've got clients that are, you know. They've left it quite a long time. This is the bird that's been having a go at its feathers for three years and whatever initial inciting problem it was has, um, has uh, morphed into a, a, a huge conglomeration of several disease and psychological problems. Um, and they've clients- got $50. <laughs> to spend <laughs> they've, they've obviously traveled between our clinics um they, they can be frustrating <laughs> um but i always you know what you're the same as me i always take these opportunities to um uh people by the time they call us up and they make an appointment you know how hard it is to get in an appointment with me um by the time they've gotten through that they're committed and so i do tend to you know pour a fair bit, as much knowledge as I can into them. And I take the attitude that if I can't change this particular bird's outcome, um, if we're past that point and now we're just palliating things, then that's still going to improve that bird's quality of life. But if we can get that knowledge out there, then the next bird that comes along won't start down the same path. So so I think it's all worthwhile. And you, you definitely do get occasional clients who just want where is where's the magic bullet? Aren't you just going to give me? I went I went to the vet and they gave me an injection for my dog and it stopped itching. Can't you do the same thing? Um, and it can be frustrating, but I yeah they go okay. I'm I'm I look forward to them, Brendan. You calm them down, Mark. You calm them down, and they they go home thinking what a lovely vet that Doctor Mark is. Yes, fantastic vet. They say. Um, I think we've got probably four or five conditions straight away that we need to do separate podcasts on, including the beak and feather disease, um, species-specific feather picking um, problems or feather feather picking, feather plucking. Nothing beats a plucked feather, Mark. And we will deal with those in future podcasts. But I think, as you can tell, I'm about to wrap up this <laughs> this podcast. Um, are there any sort of closing statements you want to make about our little overview of feather picking conditions in our avian friends? I would just echo the things that we say each and every week. Get a great history. Don't be afraid of these consults. Give yourself enough time. Um, explore the husbandry, do the simple things first and then look to get the more complex medical workup done and you'll be surprised how many of them get better. Excellent. And with that, Mr Outro Man has already jumped in and we will talk to you all next week and don't forget to enter for our giveaway, vetgurus at gmail.com. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.